Salvian salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut, this is Storied History, and these stories are about Christmas carols. So first things first, I have just come from a Christmas party where I did drink a little bit, and I sang two songs of karaoke, and I wanted to sing a third, but unfortunately no one knew my favorite carol, A Fairy Tale of New York. But we'll get to that. So I have been drinking a bit, and I'm currently drinking a little bit more bit. So this will be less caroling and more wassailing, but we will get to that too. So let me make it very clear right off the bat, this is not about the history of Christmas. That is a completely different thing. There are a myriad of other sources that do deep dives into the religious, the historical, the physical, the metaphysical, the metaphorical, and the forical, but that is not what I'm doing here. So if you would like to learn about the history of Christmas, I invite you to watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Linus is a great monologue at the end. I am here to talk about the songs. Christmas began as a Christian holiday, celebrating the birth of Christ. Even the name Christmas is from a very important historical figure, Father Christmas, whose real name is Jesus. (laughs) Not really. I can't even take credit for that joke. I shamelessly stole it from a British comedian, but I do think that it's kind of funny. Okay, so Christmas really actually does mean Christ's Mass. That's where it came from, and that was celebrated beginning around 300 to 400 A.D. But this isn't, again, actually this is about the history of Christmas. These are about the songs. And most of the songs, the vast majority of the Christmas carols that we know and love, were written in the last 200 years. So let's go way back before then to talk about the Christmas carols that we don't know and love. So in the very, very beginning, the first Christmas carol was, well, we don't actually know. It's almost impossible to prove, and there are few contenders, and it really all depends on how you would define a Christmas carol. The very first song that was sung specifically for Christ's Mass, for Christmas, was Jeus Reflux Omnium. That is a Latin song sung by the monks. And it's not actually a Christmas carol in the way we would think of it today. This is the one that basically sounds like... Or if you'd like to hear someone significantly more accomplished and talented than I... Now, that may be beautiful, but it is not what we would consider a Christmas carol, or at least what I would consider a real Christmas carol. Fast forward about 800 years, and we get a French song called The Friendly Beasts, about the animals in the nativity. Now, that definitely has a Christmas carol-y vibe to it, but that is really not something that is still sung today. The first song that we do still sing today 
in English was written in the 17th century. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. This is a somewhat standard religious song about being at peace because Jesus has been born. And that one was written by, uh, well, we don't know. The very earliest record that we do have was, dates back to the 1650s. And that is just an anonymous person that has written down these words. Now, was that the first version of the song? We don't know. Was it someone merely writing down a song that had already been sung? We don't know. It's certainly possible. There is actually no evidence to support it either way. And there have been several different versions of that song. I was actually surprised to discover that the version that I remember the most was kind of a hybrid of them all. So God Rest You Merry Gentlemen was officially begins its record in 1650. But 10 years before that was the first carol composed in America. And it wasn't composed in America, it was composed in Canada. And it's not English or French. It's Huron. That is to say, it is a Native American song based in the language of the people that lived around what is now Lake Huron. Part of the Iroquois Confederation, sort of, and probably, and I'm not getting into that kind of history because, well, it's rather complicated. So, it's a Canadian First Peoples tribe living around Lake Huron, and that's where the first Christmas carol composed in America comes from. It was composed in, we think, 1642, and it is a bizarre mixture of the Huron imagery and the Christian tradition. The song actually refers to Gichi Manitou, who sent his babe to a bark lodge wrapped in a rabbit skin, and the brave, brave hunters who found him and brought him gifts of fox and beaver. Now, what you just heard was an English translation of the original Huron song, but it is actually fairly accurate when it comes to the words that are being sung. And I actually really do like the idea that they adjusted their traditional gold, frankincense, and myrrh to something that would actually be culturally appropriate and, well, understood by the audience, by the, by the Huron people. So fox and beaver are more appropriate than gold and frankincense and myrrh. And speaking of animals, this brings us to the old standby, the 12 days of Christmas. I'm not going to play a clip of this one, because if you don't know this song, well, either count yourself lucky or just, you know, throw a rock, you'll hit it. This song was originally written down at some point in the late 
1700s. But it was sung before that. Well before that. Decades before that. In various variations and fashions. Now, the 12 days of Christmas is not arbitrary. Well, it's not entirely arbitrary. It's based on the timeline uh, between when the baby Jesus was born and when the Magi, the wise men, or if you're Huron, the brave hunters, came with their gifts, with the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, or the fox and the beaver, in the previously referenced carol. Okay, this one's different. This is where things kind of diverge. So, obviously, the very first Christmas song, the one that was sung by the monks, was written for the monks to sing on Christ's Mass. God rest ye merry gentlemen, that was written for people to sing at Christmas during Christmas time. Same thing with the Huron carol. But the 12 days of Christmas did not really begin its, well, its life in that fashion. The song itself probably began as a party game. During these games, players would have to remember all of the various gifts and versions and add on to them. So you'd have one person who sings on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me, a partridge in a pear tree. And then the second person would say, on the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. The third person would add on to it, and then the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, all the way up to, well, 12. These kinds of things were very common. They were uh, almost like party games. As a total side note, if you've ever seen the Netflix show The Crown, it shows the actual royal family playing one of these very traditional party games, uh, call and recall. These are memory games where you are out or you are ridiculed if you cannot remember everything that has come in the past. That is almost certainly where this song actually got its origin. And if you think that's kind of a boring and weird party game, well, then you've never been drinking, because I assure you, as I take another drink of eggnog, remembering these things over and over and over again as you continue drinking can you be, well, can be a lot of fun. It's a party game. This is before... CD players before technology. This is what they did for fun. And regardless of the email that you got from grandma, this is not a secret code for Christianity. There is absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever. Literally none. There are some people that may try to pin meaning onto the number of birds or the number of rings or the number of lords a-leaping, drummers drumming, maids a-milking, that sort of thing. It is just nonsense. Centuries later, people may take these numbers and try to form some connections, but they did not begin that way. Look, when this song was first being sung, there was no oppression related to the religion of Christianity. There was no hidden secret Meetings where people had to hide their belief in Jesus. It was very, very common, very, very open, very recognized. And the idea that they had to have a song with hidden meanings and hidden messages in order to give the actual history of Christianity and of Christmas 
as an oral tradition. It's just nonsense. It's not real. Say thank you for the sweater, Grandma, but the emails are nonsense. So the 12 Days of Christmas is actually the first really secular Christmas song, That meaning this is the first Christmas carol that is not actually based in a Christian tradition. It is rather a more secular portion of the celebration. Oddly enough, it does function as a, a kind of tongue-in-cheek measure of inflation, uh, literally. So the 2023 cost for the 12 days of Christmas is officially $46,730. Now, that's for all 12 days. And that is $1,207 higher than last year, which is a gain of 2.5% which is actually slightly less than the annual rate of inflation of 3.2%. That variation is very likely because wages have risen at the top, but not at the bottom, which would explain the discrepancy. Although 2.5 versus 3.2 is actually pretty close. And just as a personal side note, because I have been drinking, decades ago I spent some time at a, well, a military academy, the military academy. And uh, part of the Christmas tradition, part of the celebration, we used to sing the 12 days of Christmas, and it was very a very popular thing to pile these uh, wooden chairs on tops of the tables. And when you get to five golden rings, everybody just lifts up the tables over their heads. It's, it's not just the tables, it's actually like stacks of chairs upon the tables. There was a unofficial competition to see who could get up higher. It's really amazing that nobody ever fell off. And it's also amazing that this was done in sobriety. And now that I say that, I'm wondering if the cooler people weren't drinking while I was sober. Well, that's hmm, interesting. Entirely possible. Which would, though, that would be even more amazing that nobody ever fell off. Good times, though. Good memories, and a good way to celebrate that fifth golden ring, obviously, and clearly the most famous of all, the 12 days of Christmas. But I digress. I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. Now, that is 1833. And what's it about? Well, it's about a man who saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day on Christmas Day, obviously. What is it actually about? I have no idea. Yeah, neither does anybody else. Because the lyrics are basically nonsense. It literally talks about the ships sailing to Bethlehem. But Bethlehem doesn't have a port. It's landlocked. There is no actual way to see three ships come sailing into Bethlehem because there are no waterways to move them. The nearest body of water was the Dead Sea, and that's 20 miles away. Now, the Dead Sea, well, that obviously is not a very good and wonderful Christian and Christmassy metaphor, so they kind of skipped that one. It's a totally different song, isn't it? I saw three ships come sailing in on the Dead Sea on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. Day. 
not the same thing. And so as many historians are wont to do, people try to assign meaning to the words. So maybe it wasn't about ships coming to Bethlehem. Maybe it was about ships carrying the Catholic relics in the 12th century away from Israel across the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe it was about good King Wenceslas, who had three ships on his coat of arms. Or maybe it was about the camels being the ships of the desert. Although, really, that is a stretch. We don't know. It's very much more likely that the man simply wrote down something that sounded very nice, and that was it. And really, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a song. Let it be what it is. Just claim it's metaphorical and call it a day. People will praise your genius as long as it sounds good. And if you don't believe me on that, listen to any popular song in the last 50 years. So, speaking of Good King Wenceslas... Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen When the snow lay round about Deep and crisp and even Brightly shone the moon that night Oh, the frost was cruel When a poor man came That may or may not have been the Muppets, allegedly, and I claim fair use. Good King Wenceslas is uh, written in 1853, and I do like that song. I love that song. The entire song is a story, and hey, maybe that is why I like it so much. So, Good King Wenceslas on the Feast of Stephen. So that's December 26th. This is the day after Christmas. He sees a poor man gathering wood for a fire, and he, as the king, decides with his page, with his assistant, his helper, to go to the poor man's house and to bring him food and wine. And on that note, I'm going to have a little another drink. The last line of this fairly wonderful song is one uh, that kind of mirrors a sentiment that emerged in the 1800s, in England especially regarding the celebration of Christmas, and it is as follows. He who now will bless the poor shall yourselves find blessing. Now, that sentiment is actually very common now. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find any modern Christmas special that does not have some form of that sentiment attached to it, but... It was fairly new 170 years ago. So in 1850, that was kind of revolutionary, really. It really began with Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol, the popularization of the idea that hey, the poor, uh, this is their holiday. Give them, give the poor thought, gifts, and generosity during the Christmas season. 
And aside from the Christmas carol, this is the first carol that actually reflects that. And as another side note, Charles Dickens not only popularized the idea of generosity at Christmas, he was the one that inspired and popularized another Christmassy, Englishy idea and ideal, and that is of a snowy Christmas. That one is kind of a myth. Not in America, obviously. In the northern part of America, there is snow on the ground in December, definitely. In fact, I'm going to be spending Christmas with my wonderful little sister in a house in Missouri, and there will be snow on the ground, almost certainly. And if there isn't, well, she will hear from me. No, not really. Obviously, in America, it is very common in the northern states to have snow on the ground at Christmas. But in England, it is simply not the case. The reality is it usually doesn't snow on Christmas. That's kind of a myth that was perpetuated by Charles Dickens. It does snow in England, obviously, but mainly it's January and February. December is not really the month for snowy Christmases. This myth was essentially originated and perpetuated by Charles Dickens because he was born in the beginning of the 1800s. And when he was a child, England was undergoing what climate scientists now call the Little Ice Age. And so during this brief period, while Dickens was a child, it did snow every Christmas. And then he got older and it stopped, not because of him, but because, well, things had simply changed. But... When he would look back on Christmas as a child in the kind of idealistic and rosy-colored glasses, the wonderful lens that we look back on, uh, he would see the white Christmas as the ideal, the snowy Christmas, and it just, yeah, it's simply not true. It's been popularized by Dickens and for decades afterwards, but it really doesn't happen all that often. It's about one out of five Christmases have snow in England. What they do have, or did have, in England, it may not be a white Christmas, but they do have wassailing. Now, this is a tradition that definitely does date back to the 1800s, and it is one that I can wholeheartedly get behind. Wassailing is going from house to house, singing and asking for alcohol. Here we come a wassailing among the leaves so green. Oh, here we come a wandering so fair to be seen. Love and joy come to you and to you your wassail too. And God bless you and send you a happy new year. And God send you a happy new year. God bless the master of this house, likewise the mistress too. And all the little children that round the table go, love and joy come to you, and to you your wassail too. And God bless you and send you a happy new year, and God send you a happy new year. And that's what wassail is. It's a mulled wine. People show up, sing outside your door, and you give them booze. Man, that is a fantastic tradition. And then you go to the next house, and you do it again. And my guess is you get louder, more raucous, and, well, more 
filled with Christmas cheer and merriment as the night goes on. It is not caroling. Caroling is more ge uh, genteel, very stage tradition. Wassailing is a lot more fun. So if you ever hear the song, Here We Come a Wassailing, and they show wonderful people dressed in incredibly formal clothes, quietly singing outside of houses, you know that's wrong. That's a lie. Wassailing is every house you get more and more drunk. Merry Christmas. Ah. Which brings us to We Wish You a Merry Christmas. This is another wonderful Christmas demand. So bring us the figgy pudding and bring it right here. So these are wassailers that are going from house to house, demanding alcohol with the first song and with the second song. Give us treats. Don't just give us booze. Give us figgy pudding. So bring us the figgy pudding and bring it right here. Now this does include some variations and some of the versions uh, definitely the one that I knew when I grew up uh, was, we won't go until we get some, so bring it right here. Translation, we are drunk, we are not going to leave, we are going to stand here out of your house and sing, so bring us alcohol, and bring us figgy pudding, and we're not leaving until we get some. It's almost like Christmas extortion, but in a very fun way. Wow, these are Christmas traditions that have passed by the wayside, and maybe we should revive them. That would work in my neighborhood. Probably not a lot of others, but my neighborhood definitely would. But I live in one of the coolest places on the planet. Moving on to the 20th century. All right, now we're going to get The Little Drummer Boy. Okay, this song was written in 1941, uh, sort of. That's the first... This is one of those where we don't actually know when it was written. There was a whole lot of things for decades beforehand. The official thing was written in 41 and recorded, while the popular recording was done in the 1950s. But it does have roots that are much, much older. The story of the song of the little drummer boy is a little boy that plays a drum. Now he can't give baby Jesus anything because he was too poor, so he played on his little drum. He played his best for him. Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. Rum-pa-pum-pum. Rum-pa-pum-pum. And the little baby Jesus smiled at him. Isn't that sweet? And accurate. Because as every new mother will attest to, if there is one thing that a sleeping baby just loves. 
It's when a slightly older child plays a drum solo right next to it. Oh yeah, that's really, really helpful. And when the sleeping baby wakes to that drum solo from the toddler, his reaction is definitely going to be smiling beautifully and not crying or raising a fuss. Of all of the Christmas songs, this one is quite possibly the least believable of them all. But the song is actually based on a French song written 300 years earlier, which itself is based on a story, a legend uh, from the Czech Republic about a little, well, maybe the Czech Republic, we're not sure. Could be Czech, could actually be French. But a little boy who plays his drums in front of the statue of uh, Mary and the baby Jesus. And according to the legend, the statue smiled. And that is where we get, then he smiled at me, pa-rumpa-pum-pum. I like the new version better, probably because of the onomatopoeia. And that's actually not just my opinion. Bing Crosby said the song would never have been successful if not for that onomatopoeia. Pa-rumpa-pum-pum, rumpa-pum-pum. Now, that song was definitely written with a commercial interest in mind. But it is obviously, definitely, 100% not the most cynical commercial Christmas song of all time. Now, at this point, unfortunately, we are moving past the area where I can still claim public domain or at least push the boundaries of fair use. So we're not going to be playing any more sound clips. Nah, I'm not happy about it either. Well, what are you going to do? Hey, Seamus Editor here. Uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I have recorded melodies that are very similar to these famous Chris Carols, but are slightly different so as to give you an idea of what we're talking about without infringing on anyone's copyright. Well, what we're going to do is talk about the uh, most cynical commercial Christmas song of all time, and that is uh, one of the more successful ones, and that is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Before I do talk about that, I would like to address one of the more common Christmas commercialization myths, and that is about the image of Santa Claus. Santa Claus was not created by the Coca-Cola company. That is a fun myth to tell, but it just simply isn't true. Look, I really do enjoy breaking down some of the myths uh, of history and the misconceptions, and I kind of enjoy breaking down where things come from. I hope you do too, because that's probably why you're listening. Santa wasn't created by Coca-Cola. The very first Coca-Cola advertisements were in the 1930s. Well, I'm sorry, the first Santa advertisements where they depicted Santa Claus in a bright red hat and the white fur trim. That's in the 1930s. But Santa Claus as an image, that specific image, had existed in that exact way for decades before. In fact, it's really not hard to find images of Santa that are exactly in the red and white and the long beard, the black uh, boots going down chimneys. They go back to 1906, 1908, 1925. It's very common for decades before Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola didn't invent it, so just let that one go. 
the commercialization that did originate was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it was very, well, it was really, it was extremely a cynical invention. Basically, the Montgomery Ward department store was giving away coloring books. And it wanted to give away a coloring book that was unique to their store that they could copyright, that no one else could infringe upon, and they would not have to pay rights, commercial rights, to anyone else. And so they asked one of their employees, named Robert May, to completely invent a Christmas story that they could then copyright and go from there. He did so. And in fact, he kind of workshopped the name Rudolph. That was one of several different options. The other ones were Rolo and Reginald. Reginald the Red-Nosed Reindeer just really doesn't have the same ring to it. According to Robert May, he was actually walking home in Chicago in a very thick fog uh, coming off of Lake Michigan. And all of a sudden, he was struck by an inspiration. He saw a red light in the fog, and hey, it's a nose, it's a bright nose, that could shine through the fog. And that's it. That's how we get Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So it began as a coloring book in 1939, and it may have actually stayed that way if not for a little bit of luck. Uh, Robert May had a brother-in-law, and his brother-in-law was named Johnny Marks, and Johnny Marks was a songwriter. This was not even the first Christmas song that he wrote. There was another one, although much less popular. After his career, uh, well, really took off because of Rudolph, he wrote other Christmas songs you would 100% be familiar with that I 100% can't play on this podcast. He wrote Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. He wrote A Holly Jolly Christmas. He wrote Silver and Gold, which is a wonderful song. It was actually part of the stop-motion animation version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that I think I will watch after I finish this podcast and before I finish my eggnog. Silver and gold. Oh, oh, sorry. Let me finish the podcast first. That's where he got his real start. The first one that really was a hit was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and it was 10 years after the coloring book first hit the shelves, so 1949. It was recorded by Gene Autry. It became an instant classic and is still sung to this day. It's so popular that derivatives have also sprung up. So all of the other reindeer, get it? Not all of, but olive, O-L-I-V-E, huh? Huh? Get it? Get it? Yeah, it's a thing too. That may be where you know you've hit success is when people give very, very bad derivatives. It was a smash hit for Gene Autry, so much so that they tried to recreate the magic. They tried to recapture the lightning in a bottle. So a group of songwriters literally sat down and tried to write a Christmas song that would somehow capture and engender and endear itself, uh, kind of be the same spirit as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And that's how we get Frosty the Snowman. They did try to kind of recapture the same childlike wonder, and they pretty much did succeed. It is generally regarded as a Christmas song, although believe it or not, 
Christmas is not actually ever mentioned in the song, in the lyrics to Frosty the Snowman. Not one single time. There is a snowman, you put a magic hat on its head, and all the kids have a good time. Yeah, fun stuff. Okay, so we are going to finish this. I'm going to wrap this up uh, by talking about a song that is very, very well known in England. Although not nearly as well known outside of England and outside of the UK. And I know that for a fact because tonight at my Christmas party when I wanted to sing it as a duet, I couldn't find a single person that actually knew the well the, uh, that song well enough to actually sing it. It is absolutely one of my favorite Christmas songs of all time, and it is called A Fairy Tale of New York. Now, A Fairy Tale of New York carries with it a, an air to a title. Sounds whimsical, sounds magical, sounds amazing, almost childlike. The very first line of the song is, It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. Ah! It was written by an Irish band, a one that was started by an Irishman that was so drunk that he was actually kicked out of the Irish band that he started. So that does say something about, well, something. It was written and released in 1987, and if you have never heard this song before, well, this will be your first time. And you absolutely should pull it up on Spotify or YouTube or whatever it is that you do use. It is kind of unique as a Christmas song, and you can, on the very first line, you know it, it is unique. It is one of the most played uh, non-carol Christmas songs of the 20th century and 21st century. It is frequently cited in the UK as the best Christmas song of all time in various television, radio, magazine, newspaper polls in the UK and in Ireland. And according to the ITV in December 2012, it was voted the nation's favorite Christmas song. And around and about the song comes the what has been described as Britain's absolute worst festive tradition. And that is arguing about the language in the song. <laughs> so basically, to give you just a slight bit of context, but again, you should listen to this on your own. This song is about two people. It's a man and a woman who are singing to each other close to the end of their relationship. So in the beginning, it's a beautiful song. When you first took my hand on that cold Christmas Eve... You promised me Broadway was waiting for me. A beautiful, beautiful imagery. We kissed on the corner and danced through the night. But as our relationships do, well, not all, but the vast majority, as they do, many times do, uh, they sour. Now when you begin to fight, you may use language that you may regret. At this point, if you've got kids listening, uh, turn this down. You're a bum, you're a punk. You're an old slut on junk. Lying there almost dead on that drip in that bed. You scumbag, you maggot, you cheap, lousy f Happy Christmas, your ass, I pray God it's our last. 
definitely unique as Christmas carols go, but my God, it's so beautiful because they redeem. They kind of... This is hard to put into words. Basically, if you descend into the depths, you can then ascend to the heights, and that is essentially what that Christmas song does. The chorus is powerful. It's beautiful. And the last lines of the song is they kind of reconcile, they reconcile, they make up, I could have been someone, well, so could anyone. You took my dreams from me when I first found you. I kept them with me, babe. I put them with my own. I can't make it all alone. I built my dreams around you. Christmas or not, that is a beautiful sentiment. It is very powerful. God, I love that song. Although, again, unfortunately, it does include a huge bit of myth. The chorus, the hook, the boys of the NYPD choir still singing Galway Bay. There is no NYPD choir. They made that up for the song. doesn't actually exist. But, wow, is it a great song. And it does ring authentic. It does ring true. Because that is how people talk to each other, especially if they're very, very angry at one another. Every year when that song gets played in England, there are people that get mad about the language, that mad about the lyrics, and there are a vast number of other people who scream them down because... Stop. It's ridiculous. Don't. There are more important things to be angry about. So it is not a child-friendly Christmas carol, but it is definitely my favorite. I wish I could play it here, but I stretched fair use to the limits earlier, and we're definitely, this does not fall out of the public domain, having only been written in 1987, so we're not going to push our luck. Go listen to that song, although maybe, maybe not with your kids present. A Fairy Tale of New York. But like all good things that must come to an end, I have come to the end. I'm pretty much done here, so let me just say, you're a bum, you're a punk. Happy Christmas, your ass. I pray God it's our last. Not really. <laughs> yeah, I do love Christmas. I'll see you next time. Wow. Uh, this is several days later. I really enjoyed making that podcast. I just listened to most of it again. I was definitely filled to the brim with Christmas cheer. It was a good party. It was a good night. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. The next day, I was haunted by the ghost of hangovers yet to come. But it was worth it. I do have my slightly slurred speech. Did not offend. Uh, I definitely was more of the wassailing than the caroling kind. I do wish you a Merry Christmas. While I am on my little Christmas break, I'm going to be researching the next story. And if you do want to hear it, hit the subscribe button. The subscribe button should be around here somewhere. I don't know. You'll have to find that yourself. If you do hit subscribe, then you'll be able to hear it. Merry Christmas. Go do some wassailing. Although, 
perhaps quite not as much uh, as I did when I made the rest of that podcast. <laughs> eh, it was still fun. And you should go listen to the Fairy Tale of New York. It is a great song, whether you are sober or drunk. Thanks for listening. Storied History is written and recorded by Charles Chestnut with editing and audio design by Seamus O'Connor. Original music by Seamus O'Connor with various and plenty of public domain recordings of Christmas carols throughout this episode. Have a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and thank you so much for listening.